Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. This is week two of our series on love. And so the, the portion of scripture that we're dealing with is in 1 Corinthians. This is Paul writing to the church of believers in Corinth. And in, just in case you missed last week, and maybe if you didn't, if, you, if, it's, if it's not really um, in the forefront of your mind, I just want to remind you real quick, just for a moment, about Corinth. Now, Corinth was a city that was planted by the Greeks. It was several hundred years before Christ came and before he was born, the city of Corinth was established. It was established primarily um, by the Greeks and in all of the Greek societies, they had certain gods or goddesses based upon Greek mythology that they worshiped. And the, and the sp- uh, specific god that they worshiped in Corinth was Aphrodite. The Aphrodite was the god or goddess, I should say, of love, but their view of love was very skewed when it comes to Aphrodite's. It was very physical based. There's a lot of sensuality. It was all a pursuit of pleasure. And that was how um, they, the, the, the foundation of their worship of Aphrodite's was, um, was, was viewed. And so uh, several hundred years after the city has been erected and it's, and it's you know, thriving, it is actually overrun, it's conquered, and it's burned to the ground. And over the next several decades, there are a handful of other, of other empires and other regions and nations who kind of come in and take over the area. But the big dog walks in on 44, AD, or 44 BC, and it's the Roman Empire. And Julius Caesar leads a Roman army into the, the city of Corinth and takes it over. Well, they bring all of this crazy... Uh, the crazy belief system of the Roman Empire and all, everything that they're about, they bring that into Corinth. And so there is this very hodgepodge, very skewed and messed up version of what love really is. And so Paul lives there for a year and a half and he is steeped in this culture. He understands it very well. And he speaks to the culture on the source of love. He, he talks to them and, and defines true love for a culture that was built on the worship of sex, sensuality, pleasure, immoral behavior, wealth, luxury, and violence. And um, if, if, if somebody asked me the question, I would say that all of these pertain a lot to here, uh, us here in the United States right now, that definition and those categories of our culture. So what he does is he, he wants to reset their expectation because the culture has imprinted its belief system on the church. And he wants to reset this, and he's telling them in the, in the final verse of 1 Corinthians 12, it's verse 31, he says this, But now let me show you a way of life that is best of all. It's a life of love. And if you're following along in your notes, the first line of your notes here is this, Paul prioritizes love over every action and then gives 15 characteristics of love. Now we're not going to go um, we're not going to do a deep dive into these 15 characteristics tonight. We'll we'll pick that up sometime in the future. But I do want to read these three short verses and I want us to to get an idea of what Paul is pointing believers to. Okay? So we're going to start 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. 
or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Another version of this scripture, another translation of this scripture, wraps it all up by saying love never fails. So before we go any further in this series, what I want us to do is I want us to drill down on that specific word, love, that Paul is pointing to in this passage. The reason I want to drill down on it a little bit is because English, our, 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 our English language is not very descriptive. If you speak another language, you, you are very familiar with what I'm talking about, that um, um, the, the English language doesn't have a lot of descriptive nature in it. And why that's important is because the Bible was not written in English. It was written primarily in Hebrew and Greek. There's a little bit of Aramaic thrown in there in different parts, but primarily Hebrew and Greek. So we use one word, love, for a ton of different contexts. Let me give you an example. I love my family. And then we use that same word that we're expressing love and admiration to our, our family to say, I love barbecue. Now, if your family has upset you lately, you really might love barbecue more than them at the moment, but that's another message for another day. But we use this word love in the same word in different contexts and different things. Somebody, you know, if you're a wife that's watching, you might go, man, I love my husband, but I also love those shoes that I wore tonight. You know what I mean? So there's this different connotations, but it's the one English word because there's not a high level of description in the English language. But that is different for Scripture. The Bible uses four different words for our one English word of love. And it, and it gives us some, some focus. It gives us a description. It gives us an area to look at so we can deeper understand the word. So let's look at these four words really quick. And they're the next lines here in your notes. The first type of love that it, that it uh, talks about is phileo love. P-H-I-L-E-O. Phileo. <clears throat> this is the love that reaches beyond that of a natural friendship or acquaintance. It's a powerful bonding that cements a community or group of people like a church or a, a community like a city and things of that nature. Phileo. It's also, a little fun fact here, Jeopardy for you. Uh, phileo is the root word of the city. Anybody? Philadelphia. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. Thank you for everybody who's here. Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> okay. Um, love, the second type of love is storge. S-T-O-R-G-E. Just spell storage without the A. S-T-O-R-G-E. This type of love is the, the affection extended to family, like your parents, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins, etc. The third type of love is eros. E-R-O-S. E-R-O-S. Eros. That is romantic love in reference to a husband and wife. Technically, um, there's a lot of versions of the Bible that don't mention Eros by name, but they refer to it. So that's why it made our list here today. And last but not least is agape. A-G-A-P-E. Agape. This is the highest form of love. It is the love used to describe how God loves. Think about that for a second. 
It's the love that's used to describe how God loves and loves us. So when we just read that scripture in 1 Corinthians where it said, love is patient, love is kind, the, the word love that's being used here is the last one, is agape. The specific word for love Paul uses in these scriptures is agape. So what I want to do here is because he's resetting the cultural expectation of what love really is, I want to drill down on this word agape and look at three different, um, three different things in this message that would reflect upon this type of love. <clears throat> Number one, agape love leads to action. Agape love leads to action. I'm going to read right now probably the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This word love in this scripture, for God so loved the world, this word love in this scripture is also agape. This word love is also agape. This is in reference to God not just, not just giving us a gift of love, but he himself being the essence of love. He is the creator, the author of love, and he embodies everything that is agape, the highest form of love. He embodies it. And what it does when he has this agape, it propels him into action on behalf of us. He had the highest level of love for all of mankind, and because he had that, he gave. It pushed him to a position of action, and in this action he gave. A lot of people get nervous when people in church talk about giving because they think they're going to take an offering, and that's not what's happening right now. Because I don't want to insult the gift that God gave in comparing it to money and what we give sometimes to church. It's the comparison between a grain of sand and the size of the sun. It's almost incalculable what we can give monetarily and financially to what God has given us from his love, from his agape. God is agape. He is the highest form of love. And in that agape, agape he made a decision. It's the next line there in your notes. He made a decision to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Sending Jesus to die was the greatest act of love in all of human history. Okay, Matt, I get it. God loves me. Jesus loves me. We're kind of <clears throat> pounded on that point here. Uh, I, I get it. Now, I want you to understand something. We're going to continue to drive down and drill down a little bit deeper. Why? Because I run into many people, and I hear a lot of people ask questions of ministers and Christians throughout the world, and their, question, their, their question is really this. Isn't Christianity just one of the world religions out there? Isn't it just kind of like one way to live? 
Isn't it just one of many? You know, I can list all these major world religions and Christianity's in there, and we just pick the one that kind of works for you, and you just believe what you believe and leave us all alone. And combining Christianity with religions from the world is like trying to add oil and water. They will not connect together. And let me explain why. The next sign in your notes, religion equals rules. Religion equals rules, but Jesus equals relationship. Jesus equals relationship. If we focus on our activity as the way we earn grace from God, then we have shaped the gospel into man's image and into an eternally worthless religion. Here's what I mean. If you were to look at the major world religions, and I know there's thousands of them out there, but there's probably three that are, that are major world religions. Most of the world religions require some type of physical acts, physical sacrifice, this regimen of rules that you have to follow. Some, some say that you have to pray a certain number of times a day. Some say that you have to wear a certain type of clothing. Some people um, are actually required when they follow their religion to have a, a stone or, or wood or plastic uh, image, like an idol of their God or their deity that they believe is watching over their home in their house. And on certain holidays or holy days, they actually have to present food to the idol before they eat as a celebration of this false and pagan God. We've talked in the past about, uh, about um, other religions in biblical times that required certain types of sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, times most nations of the earth had some type of false god that they worshipped that required various religious acts. We've, the one that we highlighted several months ago was the Canaanite god Moloch. And they would literally have bronze arms on this statue that would sit out in front of him like this. And they would take newborn babies and they would heat these brass arms up so hot with fire that they would glow red and they would put the babies, the live newborn babies on his arms and watch them burn to death as a sacrifice to this false pagan god. All of these religions have all of these things that you have to do. you got to keep this. you got to keep that. And if you were to talk to anyone who has that belief system and they follow that religion... They will not be honestly able to tell you if they're really going to make it to heaven. There is no way, if you're truly following those, the, the teachings that are the core of these major world religions, you can ask them and say, how do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And if they're honest, their answer will be, I don't know. I have no assurance. I'm just hoping that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. And when I get up there, either uh, whoever the God is that I'm worshiping or gods that are up there, whoever they are, I hope they just look at me and go, he's a good guy. She's a good girl. And they kind of let me in. But no one can know. Do you see the difference between religion and a relationship with Christ? Do you see that the, that the foundation of these religions has to do with you and me doing some kind of physical act to make ourselves in right standing or earn the love or forgiveness of our quote-unquote God? 
we know beliefs and teachings are man-made. It's the next line there in your notes. We know beliefs and teachings are, man, are from man-made religions when they require some physical sacrifice or act of personal discipline to get approval from their false god or gods. Look, if we can achieve it on our own, there would be no need for Jesus. If we could get to a point where we would do enough good deeds, there would be no reason for Christ to come and die for us. But I'm, I, wanna, I'm, I'm, I really want you to see the difference here that what motivated God, our God of the Bible, the, 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 the almighty God, creator of everything, what motivated him to send his son was love. It was not an effort to get us to jump through hoops to appease him because who knows why. All of this uh, works. I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to do all this stuff is really prevalent in, in early parts of Scripture. And then Jesus enters the picture and begins to point people to the truth of humanity's ability to have a relationship directly with God. Not because of their own efforts, but because of his sacrifice. Because of his sacrifice. Look at the difference. All of these man-made religions are down here swimming, competing with each other for dominance. They're competing with each other of what kind of rules can I keep? What kind of uh, good deeds can I do? What things can I be a part of that would show my loyalty to all these deities that are out there? I don't know which one it is, so I'll just pick one or I'll, I hope I'm just cool with all of them. What is, what is happening here is these guys are all on this level fighting because they've been created by man. The only thing man can do is try to find a way for man to try to accomplish getting access to something above him. But Jesus steps in above the fray and says, all of this is nonsense. You can't be holy or good enough to walk into a relationship or the presence of a truly good and holy God. We cannot earn perfection through our works. We can't earn it so we can be in the presence of a perfect God. He loves us enough to give us a way to get to Him, to be reconciled with Him. He operates on a plane that human beings do not default to, and that is love. And not just that feeling of love, but agape, the highest form of love. Through Jesus, God gives us something that will only cost him and only benefit us. Think about that for a second. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He created everything from nothing. He was before everything began and he will remain after everything is gone. He needs nothing. So anything that he gave to us is only a cost for him. There is no benefit because he doesn't need anything. The benefit is solely ours. This seems like a, a huge thing once you stop and, and, and think about it in the context that we're discussing right now. To think, man, he did that for me, but it gets even better. He... He didn't just do this massive first step by, uh, of love and trying to reconcile us and send his son. 
he sent his son to live as a human being. He didn't send his son to erect some big monument or write on a mountain somewhere of this is what you have to do to be right with God and then turn around and go right back up to heaven. No. He sends him to live like us. This is another way that we see the love of God displayed is Jesus being relatable. Jesus is relatable. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 lines out this point perfectly. So then, since we have a high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and find grace to help us when we need it most. God loves you so much that he didn't just give us a way to be reconciled to him. He went a step further and didn't just send Jesus, but he sent Jesus to live an entire human life for us. He loves you so much he wanted to walk in your shoes so there would be no way that we could look at him and say, you don't know what I've been through. I can look at a plastic idol or a wood idol or a metal idol that was shaped by man, shaped by man's imagination and by man's hands, and look at that and go, you have no idea what I've been through. You're an inanimate object. I am a living, breathing, eternal human being. There is no relation there. There is no relatability. What this means is that Jesus knows what it is to struggle. Think about that. He knows what it is to struggle. He knows what it is to hurt, to cry, to be tempted, to be betrayed, to be mocked, falsely accused. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it's like to be born, to have to learn how to walk and speak. And he also knows what it's like to die. We don't have some far off, distant Savior or God that is out there in the ethos or the atmosphere somewhere who's completely um, just left us by ourselves to figure all this out on our own. No, He is agape and He went all the way down the line to give us not just a Savior, but a relatable one who knows what we have walked through. <clears throat> that is the loving nature of the Almighty God. If our strength was enough, there would be no need for Jesus. But now, it looks like we've already had the cake and we're eating it too, but now Jesus and, and our Almighty God goes a third step further. He goes a third step further and provides us with something to help us accomplish His will. Not only did God send His Son to die for us, to create a way for us to be reconciled to Him and have His Son live a human life to show us He understands our condition, He goes one step further in His immediate love. God gave us the Holy Spirit 
to empower us as believers in Christ to live the life that he has called us to. He didn't just lay out a whole bunch of, of, uh, of demands and say, you got to do all this, and if you fall short, I'm up here and going to crack you. In this almighty, I am above everyone, power-hungry, false God. He goes one step further, and Jesus teaches us as believers in Christ how to live. And then he says, I know you're not going to be able to do it. So when you become a believer in Christ, when you get saved, when you truly give your life to God, the Holy Spirit is now living inside of you, giving you new desires, a new life, a new pursuit, a new thing in you that is alive, that causes conflict against our flesh. I want you to hear me when I say this. We can't live for God without God. We can't live for God without God because if we could, it would just be another religion. And my friends, serving Jesus and following Almighty God is not some religion. It is a loving relationship with the Creator. Number two, agape love justifies. Agape love justifies. The moment we get saved submit our life to God, and become a true believer in Jesus, we are immediately justified. This means that you are immediately made right with God. You are immediately made right with God. Here's a good way to understand what justified or the, the, um, the term justification really means. Just as if I had never sinned. Think about that for a second. Just as if you had never sinned. So when you become a believer, you are saved. You give your life to Christ. You are saved from that moment and you are justified. And that means that God looks at you with this agape just as if you had never sinned. This means that God will not love you any more than the moment you were saved. Man, think about that for a second. God will not love you any more later than the actual moment you became justified. You were saved through faith in Christ. How does that work? Well, he's not human. (laughs) He is love. He doesn't give you a little bit of love up the front and try to make you earn a bunch of it on the back end because he's had a bad breakup from a previous relationship. He doesn't operate the way human beings operate. He is so far above. He not as only, he's not a being trying to love. He is agape. Paul writes to that same church, church in, in Corinthians a little bit earlier in chapter 6 and says this, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And here's the punch in the gut. 
Some of you were once like that. But you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God. You were justified. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Scripture clearly references that God chooses not to see our sin and our shortcoming anymore. When we are put in right standing with Him, He sees the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And our faith in Him gives us that blood to cover our wildly flawed and imperfect life. There may be some of you who would say something like, that's good that he doesn't remember it, and I'm, my mind is blown that I'm justified with him. I'm made in right standing immediately as I'm a believer. But Matt, I remember my sin. I remember the things that I did. I remember all of my screw-ups, all of my mess-ups, all of my shortcomings, all the things that I knew were wrong, and I still defiantly went and did them anyway. And I would say... Me too. God still wants us, even with our flaws. So anytime we remember the long list of our own past sins, it should bring us to a place of humility and intense gratitude for Jesus. It should bring us to a spot of not where we are like, if it was me, and I've had these thoughts before, and so if you're struggling with this, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. Matt, I can't believe you did that. You screwed up. You are not worth the, the life of Christ. You are not worth the blood of Christ. You are not worth that thing. And my friend, God agapes you so much that he was moved to action, and he, his love justifies us. And when we think about the greatness and the great love of our God, it should bring us to a point of humility and intense gratitude for our Savior. Through Jesus, we are made right with God. We are justified with Him. Number three is agape love sacrifices. Agape love sacrifices. I sometimes sit and think about how massive this agape love has to be that I can't even wrap my head around it because I know the gross things that are in my heart. The anger, hatred, envy, jealousy, lust, selfishness, failures, and that's just the tip of the iceberg for me. It's just to name a few. And it blows my mind to think that he wants anything to do with me at all. Every single person is guilty of sin. Every person walking the planet is guilty of that. No matter what we do, we can't make it right with him. We just have to believe in Jesus. Give him our life. I sometimes wonder why God didn't just destroy the whole earth. I mean, I know he did with Noah in the flood, but he kept some humanity around to, so they could repopulate the earth. 
but I sometimes wonder why did he just look at all of the terrible things that we were doing with his creation? The terrible, selfish things that we were, we were obviously guilty of mankind throughout history and even more modern, in a more modern time, what we specifically are doing. Not we as a, as a species of man, but we personally and individually. God could have destroyed the whole earth, but instead he deals with those who repeatedly reject him to give us a choice to believe in Christ. He sacrifices for us so that we would have the opportunity, a choice, to be made right with him through faith in Christ. This is a, a saying that we use a lot in our youth time, and we may have said it a couple times here, but it's very important to this, this point here in this message, is that there can be no love without choice. There can be no love without choice. When we're truly born again, God gives us a new nature, a new identity, and a, and a new future. He gives us a new power to live up to His commands. We get these things not because we deserve them, we get them because He is love, He is good, and His forgiveness is, immeasur- is immeasurable in the author of our grace. The sacrifice, the initial sacrifice from Jesus is something we could never fully comprehend. But the sacrifice in letting us, letting humanity look at Him and spit in His face question his existence, mock his followers, look at his word as if it was just the writings of some eccentric people. He sacrifices and deals with all of that because he's love and he wants to give us a choice to follow him. Let me draw a quick picture, a mental picture for us real quick as we're wrapping up the message here today. Let's pretend that you are back to being a child, and for some of you that is a long, long time ago, so I apologize. Just try to imagine it in your head. Um, it's a dad joke, but I'm bam. Um, but just think of yourself as a child, and then think of the moments where you were going through some of, you were having some of that time. You were in that kind of phase, and you were just pushing back on everything your parents were saying. And if that is not you, then just pretend picture me because that was definitely me <clears throat> and push it back on what my parents are saying and I was being disobedient I was not following their guidance or the the rules that they've laid out for our home and our family for the way that we should live <clears throat> and I pushed the boundary pushed the boundary pushed the boundary enough and then dad walks in the room and says hey son um, or daughter in your case um, I've told you a whole bunch of times how this needs to go told you what needs to happen and I'm going to give you one last shot here to obey if you step out of line here there's going to be some punishment and I'm going to bring the heat in the south bringing the heat meant uh, that my backside was going to be warmed up by the belt that went across it a couple times because I got correction from my dad that way so we as children hear that and go yeah okay dad I got you I got you and then an hour later what happens cross the line, forget what we were told, or just purposely ignore it, do what we've been asked and commanded not to do. And dad walks in the room and says, hey, that's it. 
head to your room and wait for me. I'm going to come in there and punish you. <clears throat> we hang our head and sheepishly just walk right into the, the room and sit down and all those thoughts are going through our head, right? The thoughts that say, man, I'm stupid, man. Why? These rules are dumb. And I'm going to tell him that when he walks in here. And then you kind of think about when he walks in there. And you're like, I'm not going to say anything like that. <laughs> Some of us may have ran to the dresser and put on 10 pairs of underwear and to try to soften the blow of what we knew was coming. But as we sit there, the reality, and if we're, the sets in, and if we're honest, we have to say, I deserve the punishment that's coming. I deserve it. It takes dad a little while to walk into the room and those minutes seem like hours, right? Because we know what's coming and it's inevitable. And then the doorknob slowly turns and he opens the door and walks into the room. Sits down on the bed next to us and lovingly explains, I'm doing this because you have stepped out of line. I need to correct you and teach you something. So I want you to stand up, turn around, put your hands on the bed so, you, so your hands are out of the way. You can almost hear that zip or that swoosh of the belt as it leaves all of the, the loops on his, around his waist. And right before we wince and tense up and brace for what's coming, we can see out of the corner of our eye our father's hand raised up with the belt. And close our eyes and wait for what is coming because we deserve it. Several moments go by and nothing happens. And some of us might wonder, is this like a psychological warfare of my dad? You know, like what is, he's making me wait, you know, it's coming. But then out of the corner of our eye, we see a belt that was in his hand fall and hit the floor. We turn in shock and confusion and look at our father and go, wait, what happened? And he said, while you were waiting in here, I had a conversation outside with someone else. Someone I'm really close to and we understand that yes, you did deserve this and yes, you are the wages of your disobedience should be this punishment. We understand that, but there's also so much love in my heart for you and in this other person's heart for you that while you were waiting in here, we agree, we came to an agreement that I took the punishment I was going to give you and gave it to him. You are in right standing with me because he paid the price. I love you. We're done. If it was me, that moment of confusion, I would run out the door and say, who is this person? I'd look to see someone on their knees, tears running down their face, obviously bearing the, the, the marks of the punishment that was meant for me. You can kneel down and say, who are you? Person just whispers back, my name is Jesus. I don't understand why did you take 
the beating for me. It was mine. It was rightfully mine. I did the wrong thing. I did the deed that was, I was told not to do. And then you stepped in as a sacrifice and took the punishment for me? Why in the world would you do that? And the only words that come out of his mouth is, I agape. I love you. It's not a perfect analogy because ultimately our sins lead to death, but I wanted to draw something close to home to try to make us start to even just for a moment taste and realize what really happened on that cross. What really happened when God sacrificed his son for us. Romans 3, 21 through 26 lines it out pretty well. It says this. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping all the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writing of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding His blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when He held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For He was looking ahead and including them in what He would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate His righteousness, for He Himself is fair and just, and He makes sinners right in His sight when they believe in Jesus. The most perfect Son of God came through the poorest of circumstances and took the blame and punishment for the sins of humanity because He is love. With that understanding, let me go back to 1 Corinthians. With that understanding of what God has done for us as His children, with that fresh in our minds that He was moved to action. He ju- we were justified because of His love and it was moved to sacrifice. With that fresh in our mind, let me read this again. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. 
It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love never fails. The very first fruit of the Spirit lined out for us from Paul to the Christian church is love. That should be growing in us as believers. That should be the characteristics of the foundation of our relationships with other people. We as believers in Christ are called to reflect those things. We are called to reflect that type of love because God first showed it to us. I want you to make it personal just for a second. God showed that love to me. That love, that agape, the highest form of love, will be something incredibly fulfilling as we grow in that love. Many people are struggling for some type of fulfillment. They try all kinds of different things to temporarily fill the gap because there is something missing. And that thing that is missing, my friend, if that is you, it is the love, the agape of Almighty God. Maybe you're a believer and you're worn out and you haven't spent a lot of time with, with Him lately in prayer. You haven't really been reading His Word. Those things feed our spirit. And when we read and consume those things, the Holy Spirit brings them up in moments to remind us of what the Word says, of what God's promise is for us, no matter what you've done, no matter if you knew that it was the wrong thing to do and you said, screw it, I'm going to do it anyway. Regardless, the highest form of love, agape, that God embodies is presented to you through the body, blood, broken flesh of Jesus Christ. 